Would you welcome Dr. Harvey Collins and uh, come and share with us this morning. We actually learn through our ears and through our eyes. We don't learn through our lips. A symbol is a sign that stands for something else. Before a man ever had a written language, he used hand signals or traced lines in the sand. No voice is ever needed when you point a finger. We know what you're saying, what you're doing. If you shake your head, we know what it means. Or if you bow your head, we know what it means. Sounds also have meanings without the use of words. My experience I'd like to share with you is back in Camp Blanding, Florida, 1946. I was inducted into the Army. A frightened young man, never been anywhere in my life. We were standing in a row and an officer said, can any of you boys type? Boys didn't type in those days and I kept my hands to my side. But I actually took typing and bookkeeping because we were short of courses in the junior and senior year. And I did very well in typing and so I finally raised my hand. And he said, all of you whose hands are raised, step over here. So we stepped over there. And we went into a small building. He said, put these on your ears. Headphones, I never had them on before. I'm going to send you a sound. I want you to listen very carefully. And the sound came over my earphones. Dit, 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 dit. He said, that's the shortest sound that can be made. That's the letter I in International Morse Code. Listen for this one. Da, that's a T. And listen to this one. Da, dit, that's as long and as short. That stands for letter N. I'm going to send you these sounds over the air. Let's see how well you can type them, how fast you can type them. So here they came. Dit and da and da dit and dit and da. And when we were all finished, he looked at our papers. He said, you come with me. So a few of us got up from our chairs, went to another building. He said, okay, you will be sent to Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. And that's where you will go to radio school. I went to radio school mastered Morse code, was sent to Korea, and I served as a radio operator in Seoul, Korea for my entire overseas experience. So now, three short sounds and a long sound. You've heard of that before. Beethoven chose that as his main theme. The whole first movement is underwritten with a da 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 dum, da 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 dum, da 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 dum. Your heartbeat. And then after that, we walked outdoors. He said, Line up over this way and follow me. One, two, three, four. Two, three, four. Everything was four, four, four. Beethoven chose da 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 da. Of course, Mozart loved the three sounds in his opening. Next time you listen to one of those symphonies, see if you can pick up the tempo. Colors are also very symbolic. White stands for purity. Always has. We think of the dove. We think of the peace lily. Red stands for love. And for bravery, we have red and pink, of course, on Valentine's Day. Red-blooded Americans, we are proud of our bravery. Yellow stands for cowardice. Always has, always will. Green stands for life, everlasting life. 
Is my plant going to come back in the spring? We always wonder if it's going to turn green again. I like plants to stay green year round because it stands for everlasting life. Black stands for night. Black stands for death. But black also stands for formality. I remember the little girl watching her sister get dressed for the wedding. She had all this beautiful dress, this beautiful veil, and the little girl said, Mom, why do women always wear white when they get married? And her mother said, well, white stands for love and for purity and for cleansing. The little girl looked around, she said, well, Mom, why do all the men wear black? <laughs> Blue stands for heaven and royalty as you'll see in the painting I'm showing you shortly. Purple also stands for royalty, and um, purple is a combination of red and blue. There are only three colors in the world, you know, that can be, not be made. Everything else is a combination of those three. So I always taught my students, be sure you mix yellow with the blue if you want green. Mix yellow with the red if you want orange. Then it's also true that black and white, when mixed, make gray. However, we know that if you put opposites together, they also make gray. So I taught students to mix green with red, and you get the same shade of gray you get if you mix black with white. Color is very interesting. Numbers have also been of great interest to me. Three stands for the Holy Trinity. All ancient churches had three seating areas. I do believe you have five, because you don't have long aisles. The churches had three doorways, three seating areas. Four always represents the four directions, north, east, south, and west. The four seasons, fall, winter, spring, and summer. The four races, red, yellow, white, and black. The Egyptians were very, very good on mathematics. Every pyramid is a perfect square. We are absolutely dumbfounded when we measure the base of the pyramid. I've climbed to the top of the Great Pyramid. And of course, the top is missing, as you know. Stones of grass have been stolen and used to pave the streets in Cairo and other places. But every side of the pyramid is a perfect triangle. So you have three-sided figures on all four sides, and the base is a perfect square. <clears throat> I want to mention to you a funny little story I heard the other day in church. Our pastor mentioned this. A little boy was four years old, and his mother said, son, you can always tell your friends that you're four years old, and if you forget, you can just hold up these four fingers. This is a visual teaching method. You are four. He said, okay, mommy. But when, on the eve of his birthday, his mother had a problem. So she took him to his room, she prayed with him, and she said, now son, you see the four fingers? You are four years old tonight, but tomorrow, you were going to be five. And she held up the hand with all the fingers extended. He didn't respond. So she kissed him goodnight. He said, oh, Mom. And she looked back, and he was beaming. She said, what is it, son? He said, I understand now. Tonight, I'm only four. But tomorrow, I will be a handful. <laughs> Seven represents the number of completion. It took God six days to create this earth and all everything in it. But on the seventh, he rested. It's called the Sabbath. Eight represents a new birth, a new beginning. The music scale has seven notes. 
But if you hit the eighth note, you've got a rebirth, haven't you? A repeat of the first note. My brother was a wonderful pianist, played for the silent movies. I used to come in after school, listen to her play. Sometimes she was crying. I said, Mom, what's wrong? Oh, nothing's wrong. But the music was so emotional to her. I said, why are you crying? Oh, she wasn't aware she was crying. She just loved it so much. She taught me how to chord, how to invert the melody, play the melody with a thumb, the tenor and the alto above. And so she would sit in the dark theater, not knowing what was going to be on the screen, and she would interpret the moods and the motions, the kisses, the slaps, the turnbacks. She always could interpret that in music. Moses climbed Mount Sinai seven times. Nothing happened. God said, climb one more time. And on the eighth climb, he got the Ten Commandments. <laughs> so early churches had eight sides. And the baptismal fonts had eight sides. Eight sides. You remember that most people were illiterate. Very few people could read or write. What they learned, they learned with their eyes and their ears. Are you listening? Are you watching? I used to tell my students. I could tell if they were listening, if they were recording notes. Baby boys were always circumcised on the eighth day. In ancient times, they were afraid that the blood circulation was not settled until seven days. If you made a cut, the child would bleed to death. But on the eighth day, there was something magical. The child always survived. Now let's look at the number 11. I'm going to skip the number 9 purposely, but if any of you are mathematics people, numbers are a great love of mine. I've always loved mathematical problems. And it's very simple. If you have a pencil and a note paper, if you want to remember this, this is something really exciting. The number 9 is magical. Take any three numbers. Makes no difference which you take. Just don't take the three nines. They have to be different. Any three numbers in sequence, like 396, 147, 614, that makes no difference. Any three numbers. Reverse them. Subtract the lower three from the upper three. The middle number is always nine. No way to get around it in mathematics. And the other two always total nine. I have said this in front of large audiences, and they'll take out pads and try this, and they're all dumbfounded. I can always, I will be able to tell any of you in here what your answer is. If you do that, I will tell you what's on your page. September 9-11. Did you have cold chills? I'll never forget that morning. All right, come in here, come in here. I was sitting at the front desk. I was retired, working part-time, and the office manager called me in. He said, look at this. A plane has just crashed into the North Tower. And I stood there and watched the flames escaping out of the building. And I turned to walk out of the building, I mean, out of the room, and I went to my chair and my computer, and he said, Harvey, come back. I went back. Another plane flew into a tower, and you know the rest of the story. But here's some things you might not know. The number 11 has always been associated with uh, magic or fear. The Twin Towers look like the number 11. I remember in New Jersey taking pictures of the Twin Towers, how they stood out so beautifully, 100 stories tall. We dominated the world in height. But to the Arab world, and many others, the 11 had to be destroyed. 
The first plane that crashed into the tower had 65 people on board. Six and five when total equal 11. When the second plane crashed in, they announced 92 people were killed. Nine and two equals 11. New York City has 11 letters. Ironic, coincidental, perhaps. Also, the man who masterminded the commandeering of the planes, his name, and I didn't remember to write it down, but it has 11 letters also. Of course, 12, we are all familiar with 12, represents the 12 disciples. Of course, we know what a 12 inches on the foot. 12 months in the year, it takes 12 eggs to make a dozen. 12 colors on the color wheel. Is that all automatic, accidental? No. This is ordered. 12 is very symbolic. Christ should, could have chosen 17 to follow him. He chose 12. You have 12 paths out here on the campus leading to the center to the bell tower. The bell tower has three gigantic steel columns. Thirteen. What an odd number. Considered to be unlucky. But let me call your attention to the back of the $1 bill. I don't know how long it's been since you've seen a $1 bill, but you, maybe you can remember the $1 bill. <clears throat> On the back, we have an eagle. We're all so proud of our national emblem. The eagle soars high above. Planes have even passed by eagles nesting in top of the mountains. How high above everything. The eagle is turned facing the words, in God we trust. The eagle is clutching 12 arrows, the 13 arrows, excuse me, 12 arrows, and leaves, olive leaves in the other talon. Now we know also there are 13 stripes on the shield, if you want to take time to look sometimes on the back of the dollar bill. Hotels do not have a 13th floor. We are afraid of 13, so we tend to ignore it. It's kind of ridiculous, isn't it, when we think about it? Now tonight, I want, or this morning, I want to talk about Da Vinci, Leonardo Da Vinci. Probably the greatest mind in art, mathematics, music, whoever lived. Da Vinci had kind of a rough start. He was illegitimate. His father did not marry his mother. Vinci is not really his name. Vinci is the name of the village in which he was born. I'm so proud. I have my father's name. My son has my name. But Da Vinci couldn't have that pride. He did not have a mother who acknowledged him or a father. Eventually, the father took him in and raised him as his own son. He never gave him a name. So he was always known as Leonardo from the little village of Vinci, or today we say Leonardo da Vinci, which means from the little Vinci. And today we want to look at probably the greatest painting that's ever been made. It's not the most beautiful, and I'll tell you several reasons why it's not the most beautiful. The times in which Da Vinci grew up were troublesome times, much like our time. The government was in turmoil. The papacy was not in Rome. It had been moved, and the popes were in war against France. It was a terrible time. Money was short for art, but great artists like Da Vinci, Michelangelo, just a few miles away, was busy painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling. 
The Pope had ordered this to be done. 130 feet long, 68 feet from the floor. Two-story scaffolds had to be made so he could stand at the top. He did not lie down to paint. He stood up and leaned back like this in order to paint. It was a great time. So in charge was this Forza family in Milan, Italy. And uh, they commissioned this great painting, The Last Supper, in a room which was to become a very special place and house the mausoleum of the family. It didn't ever happen. Da Vinci could have painted all sorts of subjects. He could have used all types of material. The most famous medium at the time was tempera, which is egg yolk. Break the eggs, separate the whites, they were worthless. And the yolk was stirred and mixed with water and then applied to plaster. The plaster had to be damp. The secret of fresco painting is in the technique. Al fresco is the Italian word for fresh, which means the plaster has to be applied and you paint quickly while the plaster is still damp. If the plaster is completely dried, it's called secco, S-E-C-C-O, which means dry. Michelangelo strove for over four years to finish that Sistine Chapel. Only this much plaster could be put on the wall at one day. That's all you can cover. Seven feet tall and about three feet wide. And he painted furiously because the paint had to soak into the damp plaster. Leonardo da Vinci was a scientist. I want to do something different. I'm not going to follow the set pattern. He called the workers in. Cover the whole wall with plaster. 15 feet tall, 29 feet wide. The whole end of the north section of the room. So he waited. They put one coat on. It was dark. It was full of all kinds of chaff, cloth scraps, anything he could find. Because this is a basic coat. And this covered the bumps in the wall. The bricks were not placed evenly. So this rough coat covered the wall. Okay, guys, come back in. Put the whole wall under a coating of white plaster. And they did so, at least a half an inch thick. Then he began to paint. Now that was contrary to tradition and proved to be a terrible mistake. Some of the days in which he was painting, he was working in a hurry, and this is not going to work, I've got to have something else. So he brought in oil, and mixed oil with his egg yolk, and stirred it, ground it. Artists couldn't go to Hobby Lobby in those days. There were no Michaels and Hobby Lobbies on the corner. You couldn't buy paint already made. They bought roots and seeds and powder from foreign countries. Sometimes the powder came in little rocks. And they had to pound the rocks into a powder and use a mortar and pestle. And then they would add the egg yolk to make paint. Today, when I want to paint, all I do is squirt an inch of paint out of a beautiful lead tube and tighten it up and put it down. I don't have any of that preparation work to do at all. But he would quickly paint until he saw the plaster drying, he stopped and it's Michelangelo, this is a technique. And Vinci said, I can't do that. I want just to be free of all of that. So he had the whole wall, 29 feet across, pure white, staring him in the face. So what do I do? Let's have the painting now, if we could, on top of the screen. <clears throat> he decided, of course, to do the 12 disciples. Notice that Christ is standing in the center. 
And if you will trace the lines, let's see if I can do it for you here. If you will um, notice, <clears throat> if I can see this here. Notice the perfect triangle. You see this? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Da Vinci also used three doorways and windows. If you'll notice right behind Jesus, one, two, three. And he is focused against the largest rectangle. One, two, three, four tapestries on each side. What is Michelangelo saying, or excuse me, Da Vinci saying in this case? He's using some symbolism, which is going to bring this whole thing together. Because there are 12 men. You, normally you sit around a table. These men are all sitting on one side. The purpose, of course, is so you and I can see the expressions on their faces. Some of these men are close companions. Some are doubting their Christian experience. Some are already planning to abandon Jesus, as you know. This was a frightful time when Jesus performed the Last Supper. Now, if you've read any of Dan Brown's books, they're very popular on the market. I have all of them. And, of course, I point out from each of those the errors in thinking, but they are well done. Dan Brown has lived in Florence and in Rome, and he took all the dimensions. He got as many letters from the archives as he could possibly amass. He chose those, but he came to wrong conclusions. But Da Vinci wanted every man along the table. I notice there are 13, six on the side. Jesus is the 13th. 13 is that number I mentioned a while ago that stands out. Very, very rarely used today. But in this painting, it became a very important symbol because Jesus gets all the attention. Now, if you notice in the ceiling, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven horizontal beams and vertical beams going this way. Seven and seven. Very important numbers, as I have already mentioned to you. <clears throat> da Vinci was not only a painter, he was a mathematician. He was a great inventor. What did he invent? The helicopter, the airplane, gigantic systems which could move heavy machinery. However, none of those were ever used. He died a man who was in a foreign country. He died a man who was not really welcomed. The Last Supper became a terrible um, mistake in choice of materials, the paint began to crack and to blister and to fall from the wall while Da Vinci was still alive. Now to put this in perspective, this is right when America was being discovered. This was the Renaissance period, born in 1452, and in 1492, this, I believe America was discovered, does that sound that right? 1492. So you see the time on your history map, how important this was. So now, I've already mentioned that the men are sitting on one side of the table. He decided on four groups of three men each, not 12 individuals. These are not individuals in place. Jesus is in the center. On the far left, Bartholomew, and then we have Judas here, James the Elder here. And notice that Judas is the only one whose face is dark. He's leaning away from Christ, and he's holding a bag. We assume that's the bag of silver. He's already planning to exit the building. If Jesus has a break in his speech, he'll be ready to walk out the building. However, Jesus says, one of you, 
who stops with me, has his hand on the bread, will betray me. Judas was so busy looking at the other man, he wasn't aware that his hand was also reaching, as you see here, for bread. Jesus' hand is open. He's pointing to the bread here. Jesus is dressed in a blue robe, and he has on a red undergarment. John the Baptist, excuse me, John the Younger has a red robe on the outside and a blue on the inside. These two are close together here. Dan Brown suggested that's Mary Magdalene. Because the face is very young, it's very effeminate, and I believe from my readings that John was a very young, small man compared to the others. And he clung to Jesus whenever possible. He was a very, very close companion of Jesus. So this is why he is here. However, he has slumped in a swoon, almost fainting at the words of Jesus, one of you shall betray me. It's this very moment that the painting was conceived. Now, look at the rural right corner. It's about to be difficult for you to see. There are knots hanging from the corner of the tablecloth on both sides of the table. These are quite symbolic of perhaps a threat to Christ. Uh, experts are still trying to decipher the meaning of the um, knots tied in the tablecloth. But knots were at that time a symbol of twisting emotion and perhaps a threatening time for the particular subject of the painting. Now, as I said earlier, this is not a fresco. This is what we call a seco. Since the painting was dry, it has fallen off the wall. This has been cleaned somewhat. I was disappointed when I went there and walked in the room. It was so dark, I could barely make out the faces of the figures. These are not the figures that, my, that Da Vinci painted. Uh, about every 70 years, there's a major restoration, and these faces are now the faces of other artists. However, just a few years ago, a committee was gathered together, and they decided to remove every spot on the Last Supper that was not painted by Da Vinci. So today, if you go there, you will see the actual brush strokes of Da Vinci. Everything has been scratched off, or smoothed, or washed off the wall. Remember, it was not soaked into the plaster. It could easily be washed off of the wall. But some interesting things I want to point out to you. This is a self-portrait of Da Vinci. Notice his back is to Christ. Da Vinci is not um, particularly concerned at this stage with the uh, future. He's concerned with the uh, countenances, the attitudes of the people in placing them. He spent months studying the character of each person. Uh, John Singer Sargent was a great American portrait artist born in England. John Seeker Sargent came to the United States and made quite a fortune painting portraits. Some of the most beautiful portraits I've ever seen in my life are from the hand of John Singer Sargent. And one particular painting in the Art Institute of Chicago, which I lectured in front of every week, the lady is very, very staunch, and she was quick to announce to her servants, get to the kitchen, prepare Mr. Sergeant a cup of tea. Did you clean the stock room? She's very, very uh, dominant. He had been hired to come to her house and do a portrait. He unfolded his easel, he laid out his paints, and then she said, oh my, what should I wear? He said, don't move. 
She said, oh, I'm not wearing a black dress. So she called her servants, bring this beautiful ballroom gown. You bring that one. And Sergeant said, no, I think black suits you purposely, beautifully. So she is painted in black. And it actually fits her attitude of the time very, very well. Now, let me ask you, or tell you about this. The disciples, we know, are sitting on one side of the table. We know why now. We know why that Da Vinci chose to do four groups of three men rather than 12 individuals. But he wants you to notice their hands and to notice their faces. We, we learn through our eyes and through our ears. So Jesus had all their attention now. One of you shall betray me. All of a sudden, like electrical current, each man reacted to the statement. How would you react if you were there? If you claim to be a follower of Christ, and he says, one of you shall betray me. Let us all work together today. As a team, work together. It does no good for a powerful team member to be over here if the others are not watching what he's doing. Let's all work together. I would like to reach out a hand to the Chinese representatives, to the Afghanistans, the Iranians. Let's reach out to the Africans. Let's reach out to the Indians. And let's hold hands. Let's work together. Let's work together as a team to let the world know that God is real, that God is supreme, and that he is in control of our thoughts, our actions, our very being. As for me and my house, we will serve and we will honor him. And I think now in this present world, when people study this painting and look at it, there's so much more to be learned. I think coming from this, I have a closer concept of what da Vinci was trying to say. Maybe he did not succeed in some of his thoughts, but he succeeded in most of them. He has shown me that Christ is central in our lives. He has shown me that every single day we have to ask ourselves, is God first in my life? Do I love him with all of my heart? Am I going to work at, reach out and work with those to strengthen their lives? I want my life to shine for him. And as uh, Harold explained, uh, I was very fortunate to be able to visit many countries around the world and lecture for some of the greatest art in the world. I was always so proud, though, when the plane's engines lowered and we could stare through the windows, we could see the lights of Chicago. We were going to land at O'Hara Field. And I looked around my group, a lot of them were weeping. And we all waited without what a sound. And the minute the plane bumped the runway, everyone began to cheer and to weep openly. We're back home again. God bless America. How we love you. And then I thought of the Statue of Liberty. Are you familiar with the symbolism? How she stands so proudly with a torch holding the light. And the torch has seven bright rays representing the seven continents. Isn't that beautiful from sea to shining sea? Who can write a poem that's worthy of the Statue of Liberty? Nobody would do it. And finally, a Jewish lady 
a wonderful writer was asked if she would like to submit something. Oh no, I don't like that kind of poetry. So they kept looking and they couldn't find anyone. And finally, Emma Lazarus came forth with these words, give me your poor, your homeless. Is that our prayer this morning? To reach out and to touch others. Thank you so much.